Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello and welcome back to this next episode, the 51st episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Many of you will already be familiar with Julie Duffy Dillon, host of Love Food podcast, and her unique and quirky way that she brings all the topics to life around letters to food. I would really encourage and direct you to the Love Food podcast as Julie seeks to help us all to disentangle diet culture and diet culture's messages from our lives, whether we're health professionals, members of the community, people who are supporting others, or people who are struggling with relationships with food, eating, and body image ourselves. So Julie and I graduated about this a similar time, about 20 years ago now, and interestingly, or oddly or weirdly enough, our journeys, our professional and personal journeys have taken very similar paths. And it's so interesting to be speaking with people from all, all different corners of the world and how we feel like our, you know, our paths are both unique and also there are so many parallels and intersections at the same time. So it was my absolute thrill to be finally speaking with Julie Duffy Dillon on today's podcast episode. So for those of you who are not as familiar with Julie, um, Julie identifies as a fat positive registered dietitian. She's also a very experienced eating disorder specialist and food behavior experts. And she really, really centers her work on partnering with people on their food peace journey. Julie is trained as a mental health counselor as well, multi-talented, and supervises dietitians and other health professionals to use weight-inclusive and attuned eating strategies. As I already mentioned, Julie is most well-known as the host of Love Food Podcast and sees clients in her North Carolina private practice. Julie is also very well known for her appearances on a number of other podcasts, each of which um, are linked at the, um, in the show notes of this particular episode. So you can check out her previous episodes there. Uh, another recommendation I have is that Julie has a weight inclusive PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome course for dietitians. And you can find this at www.pcosandfoodpeace.com dot com forward slash dietitians. So Julie and I, gosh, we launched into so many different topics here. Um, but you know, just a bit, a bit of a summary. Um, Julie really summarized how she 
came to start working with folks who have PCOS. And I use the word folks there because one of the other uh, subjects that we talk about is how we can move away from talking about women with PCOS and begin to broaden the language that we're using so that we're being more inclusive of every human being who experiences polycystic ovarian syndrome, including our friends and colleagues from the trans community as well. So using the word folks or people or humans really um, signals inclusivity. And that's really important if we're aiming to provide inclusive care for people that seek our treatment, uh, treatment services. We talk about holding space for clients and the importance of taking things to supervision so that we can learn um, how how to hold space for others as space is held for us. We we kind of press pause on the subject of supervision and, and Julie really talks about how it can act as a catalyst towards growth and development and help us to identify the early warning signs of burnout, something that I'm sure a lot of us, including myself, have experienced. It's not super pleasant. Um, we also talk about uh, Julie's journey around uh, transitioning from weight-centric practice to weight-inclusive practice, and she speaks very openly and honestly about what I call fence-sitting or splinter-assing, perhaps, when we sit with splinters in our butts, um, and then also navigating an environment um, which which really pushes us in the direction of burnout. So it's really tricky. A lot of a lot of health professional environments are just primed for us to burn out, which is a real pity um, considering their time, energy and resources that we invest not only in our education and training, but then also in developing um, our, our careers and our, you know, our often our deeply held desires to be helping other people in the community as well. We also touch on why language matters, as I mentioned before, and the importance of providing gender-inclusive care as a health-at-every-size practitioner. Um, Julie uh, directs us to a lot of the podcasts um, that she has already been featured in, and again, I would just really urge you to go back to maybe um, some of the interviews, for example, in, on Dietitians Unplugged, or on Don't Salt My Game, or on uh, Love Food um, with Chavise Turner, talks about PCOS and food piece. Um, so there's loads and loads of podcasts there, um, specific episodes and other ones that Julie has been a guest on um, that you can that you can go to to find out more about Julie's work. So it is, this is going to be, um, yeah, I think this is probably going to be the last episode of 2019. So as we reach the end of this year and towards the turn of the new year into 2020, I just wanted to say a big, huge thanks to you all for being here with me. Um, every episode, it seems to, we seem to be gathering more and more people listening to The Mindful Dietitian. And whether you are a dietitian yourself or, or, or not a dietitian, just really interested in what dietitians sit around and talk about, then um, I'm so glad you're here. And thank you so much for your support of me, um, of the show, um, and of my and our work in health at every size spaces. We're, we're just so grateful for your support as weight inclusive care continues to grow. Uh, happy holidays to everybody. I hope the end of the year provides some peace, some restfulness, um, and perhaps a, a reprieve from diet culture as we turn into the new year. Uh, you can keep an eye on my Instagram, which is at the mindful dietitian. I know it's all very obvious. None of it is cloaked in anything clever. It's all the mindful dietitian. Um, I've been talking over the past couple of weeks about, um, I, I've, I've, 
you know, this last week in particular, I've done a couple of posts on, on what I have called the new product out called Diet Culture Shush, available in supersized cream and handy per size sprays so you can shush it to slay it in those diet culture moments. And of course, this is just really taking the piss and um, a, a real, you know, crack at diet culture and the way that we could just spread it like we do any kind of spread, whether it's um, spreading with our words or spreading with some good old butter or um, even, you know, just spraying it around in, in ways that, that really encourage us to shift the language that we're using around bodies, around food, um, around our eating behaviors and ways that we can really promote um, body peace and food peace. So um, I've really, I really enjoy, you know, um, taking a bit of a lighthearted approach to, to diet culture because, um, you know, it's actually very, all very serious and harms a lot of people. And, um, and sometimes it, it, if I'm not going to laugh, I'm going to cry, which I do regularly, <laughs> of course, as I, I'm sure many of us do. Again, thank you so much for being here with me today. If you'd like any more information about the activities at The Mindful Dietitian, you can find that at another very obvious way, which is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. Um, I'm on Instagram. We also have a very active Facebook group, again, The Mindful Dietitian, which you'll have to answer some questions to hop into that group. Um, but that's okay if, if, you're, you know, if, if your work and your life is suitable for the group and, um, and you're uh, prepared to you know, be involved in a weight-inclusive way, then, um, then we welcome you there. So again, thank you so much for being here and um, may there be peace for all of you and all beings for the end of nine, 2019. Thanks so much and hope you enjoyed the episode. Hey, Julie, and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Hey, Fiona. It's so, I feel so lucky to be able to chat with you right now. I have missed you and I'm so excited to chat. It has literally been years that I have been unapologetically hassling you or close to to be on this podcast am I am I correct or am I not correct yes and the stars just wouldn't align you know life was just chaotic and I couldn't make the time zones work but thankfully now I can make it work so I'm so excited to do this absolutely so time zones and young children have thwarted our yes. efforts to connect over the years however we've had a couple of in-person uh, times together, which have been so special, including a random running into each other in the middle of Chicago in a restaurant um, where we did. <laughs> I forgot one... about that. It <laughs> <laughs> was so completely random, but one of the most um, closely held memories I have of that trip. Oh, so thank you. It was yeah. so fun. I loved your workshop. It was amazing. Amazing. Oh, thank you. Well, I've got some um, special news for everybody. And that is that Marcy Evans may or may not, maybe she is, coming to Australia in 2020. And we're going to be running our body image workshop here. So that's a little bit of a, a forward announcement if anybody happens to hear this uh, in the 2019 side of 2020. So there you go. Oh, I feel so lucky to know this information. This is awesome. <laughs> I know, I know. And one of the things, Julie, is just, this is just a secret between you and me, is this is a podcast. <laughs> so it means that actually there's going to be a stack of other people that will hear it. And I forget about that. So Yeah, but right now it's just you and me. So I feel lucky to know. <laughs> it's just you and me. It's in the vault. I'm sure you won't tell anybody. <laughs> 
Yes, there we go. There we go. Uh, So, Julie, you have been a guest on a number of different podcasts and you're most well known for your work with polycystic ovarian syndrome or otherwise known as PCOS. So I really want to direct people to the podcasts Food Psych, Nutrition Matters with Paige Smathers, um, Dietitians Unplugged, Don't Salt My Game with Laura Thomas and RD Real Talk with Heather Kaplan. So those are you're really racking up the get the guest spots, aren't you? <laughs> podcasts are fun. I do like them. Well, you know, having a podcast, it just makes it so easy to jump on someone else's. So yeah, I'm always and, game. <laughs> abs- absolutely. So, I mean, that's a great place to start. So your podcast podcast is called Love Food. Um, mm-hmm. So for those people who are not super familiar, how did you kind of get started in the podcasting game and, and what have been your experiences? Well, I wanted to start a podcast back in 2006. Um, There were actually a few that I heard about it back then, which I know it's like forever ago, but um, that was also right before I started a family. So, you know, when children came about, I had to put a pause on it, but it was something I was always thinking about doing. Um, I love talking and I love exploring our food behavior and food relationships. So, um, you know, as I was talking to people, and still kind of wanting to do a podcast, what I noticed is like individuals I've talked to, people all had their own stories and experiences with food, but there were so many similar themes, but yet everyone felt so alone and so much shame because of their experiences with food. And I always would say to people, like, I wish you were a fly in my office with me so you could just hear all my other clients because yeah, you all have different experiences, different lived experiences, but there's so many similarities. Um, you, the shame that you're feeling, it's just not your burden. You know, it's, it's something that so many people can relate to. And so when I finally had some headspace to be able to put a podcast together, that's what I knew I wanted to do was like help share people's stories and their like lived experiences. So then people wouldn't feel alone. And, um, you know, having people write a letter to food was the way that I, figured out to do it because I didn't want it to be about me. Um, I don't have the lived experiences of most of my clients. So I wanted to stay out of the way, you know? And um, so people uh, describing their, their relationship with food in a letter to food was, you know, the way that I could do that. Yeah. I love the format. How did you come up with that particular format? Cause it's extremely unique. And whenever um, anybody mentions it, they immediately know that it's the love food podcast. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so curious. It's a very creative way to introduce a, like a third perspective really into, mm-hmm. you know, the dynamic of our relationships um, mm-hmm. with food and eating and, and of course then our bodies and life and everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I really wanted people to have the ability to talk about any of those things you just described. And, um, you know, I was, like I was saying before, I just knew that I didn't want the show to be about me and what I basically like wanted people to do with the relationship with food, because I think I didn't want to center me and my voice and my lived experience. Um, and one thing, um, about me is that I am a pretty creative person. I feel like I'm maybe I'm not as like, um, analytical or detail oriented as most dietitians. I am definitely more artsy and philosophical and my head's in the clouds all the time. But um, one of the things I was listening to for a long time was the Dear Sugar podcast, which is no longer around. It's such a great one, right? So sad. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, that was one of the things that in the Dear Sugar podcast, it was like a, like a self-help kind of podcast and people wrote in and they said, dear sugar. And, um, as I was kind of figuring out about what I, 
what I would do for a podcast, I kept thinking about love letters and I wanted people to feel more, um, uh, and when I say in love, I don't mean like in romantic love, but just like more in love with their relationship with food. Um, and, you know, thinking about this Dear Sugar podcast, it kind of just came together in that way. But the, the thing that I really appreciate, appreciate about it is it does allow me then to hear what a person is experiencing. And I wanted it always also to be a very healing experience. And as a someone who's trained as a therapist, something that I learned a lot about in my counseling program was a, a therapy called narrative therapy. And narrative therapy basically takes um, an, <laughs> something that's not a person or a human and, and makes it into, uh, it personalizes it. And so I wanted people to have that ability to do that in a, I don't know, it's kind of like a, on a podcast, it's not a, a therapeutic relationship. It can't be, but yet it's voices and um, people telling their story. So it's, I don't know how else to describe it, but that's basically how I kind of put it all together to, to make it into this kind of package. And something that I just love so much about it is that people are always willing to share their story, which has been so amazing that people trust this kind of medium with this really sacred kind of experience. And when people reach out about the show, the thing they always say is like, I always thought I was the only one that experienced that, that you just described in that show, but I'm, I, I know now I'm not. And that makes me feel so much better. I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I was watching. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's, that's love food and kind of how it all came together. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? How a lot of the same themes that help us to heal are the, the things that can actually drive us apart. So you're talking about, you know, the, the experiences of isolation versus connection and how you were, you know, trying to create an online space through the podcast which is no, which is not a, a replacement for individual counselling or therapy, of right. course, as you mentioned. But then also, you know, just provides this valuable voice that we can use to facilitate not only our own learnings, but also to remind ourselves that we're not alone in our in our humanness in our experiences. I just think that's a really precious gift that you've that you're offering. Oh, thank you. Well, and I, I definitely um, have the people who've written the letters to thank, you know, they're, they're mm-hmm. amazing how people have trusted me with them. And, you know, because people listening to this podcast are mostly dietitians. Um, the other part of the podcast that's really great is it gives us a window into better understanding the lived experience of mm-hmm. someone with a complicated relationship with food. And, you know, I don't have um, a history outside of like, you know, just surviving diet culture BS, but um, you know, I don't have a history of an eating disorder and my lived experience is one that's comes from a lot of privilege. And so having these letters really helps me to understand this more as much as I can understand it. And so, you know, any listener who is a dietitian, it's something that has, um, I feel like can give you a way just to better appreciate, understand that, that lived experience of having a complicated relationship with food and maybe a body that the world does not consider acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really true. And like you say, the power of story, it's not just about the power of the story itself. It's also having a space held for you, Mm -hmm. for, for someone to be able to express and convey that story in a way that, honors Mm -hmm. truly honors their experience and that is it's not a it's not a space that is commonly offered to humans um so you know when when we as dietitians I, i think when we're trained and i'd be so curious to hear your thoughts on this you know in our training i don't think we're quite prepared for you know when we're asking people about their experiences that the power of offering space and time 
and a and a and a true sense of presence for people to actually convey their experiences. I think we're just so trained to step in there and fix and problem solve. And um, mm-hmm. I just think it, there's this there's this um, there's a very steep learning curve for us as you know when we graduate that the capacity to hold a story and hold experiences is something that we're not quite prepared for. And I think it's really important to, um, as a dietitian, to know that we may be the chosen one where people want to tell us certain things that we are not prepared to hear, but we need to um, just be ready to, for someone to tell us something that could be very important. And, you know, as a dietitian, something that I sometimes feel um, shame for is I'm not someone who is technically, like I said before, I'm not like the detail oriented typical dietitian in that way, but something that I feel like I've always been has been more trained like a therapist. And Mm -hmm. so getting my counseling training did feel more like, um, coming home to my, my own skills Mm -hmm. that are innate. And, um, you know, it doesn't, as a dietitian, we have to keep in mind that even though we're trained to fix people and we are trained in a medical model, um, I think it's important sometimes to like almost sit on your hands as you're talking to someone to make sure that you don't jump in and um, allow people the the time to just like let everything out. And I'll tell my clients like, okay, let's just lay everything out on the table here and let's take our time. I'm in no hurry. Let's just sift through all of this and, you know, I can help you decide or I can just sit with you as you decide what you want to take from this and what you want to get rid of, you know, and um, I think it is really powerful to slow down with our clients and um, allow them to take their time because this complicated kind of experiences that we are now having with food, it's not something that happened overnight. So we mm-hmm. can't fix them overnight. Um, and yeah, if we give our, if I tell our clients basically verbally and, and also with our nonverbals, let them know that they have the, all the time they need with us to sift through it. Um, and that we will, like you said, hold space for them and just let them express what they've experienced. I get the feedback that that's been a really healing thing for clients to be able to just do that work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think we can all do it. I don't think it t- necessarily takes a special training. It just takes an awareness of, um, well, when I say it doesn't take training, what it takes is basically we need to do our own work. We need to do our own therapy. We need to get supervision. We need to have that, but not necessarily a technical skill, but we just need to be able to know when to shut up. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really true. So, so you've touched on something that I know that we both are very passionate about and that is supervision. And um, so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what, your understanding of supervision is and the place for it in in dietetics? So my first experiences with supervision came when I was a dietitian for about three years. I went back to grad school and studied uh, mental health counseling. And supervision is a really like normal, um, everyday part of the counseling profession. All the helpers, whether you're a psychologist, social worker, um, counselor, they all have supervision as part of their like necessary requirements. And even people who are like skilled and have been doing it for decades, they also get supervision. And the way it was explained to me is it's when a counselor goes to a counselor to help them with their counseling. (laughs) You know, it's so for a dietitian, what it looks like is working with someone that's um, trained as a, as in supervision, that's also a, a dietitian who can help you basically sort through your clients and the ones you feel stuck with, the ones you maybe feel really annoyed with or um, can't stand for whatever reason, 
being able to um, just get to see where you may be getting in your own way and really also preventing your own kind of burnout and improving things like your own relationship with food and body image. Cause those things all are going to come up when we're talking to people about these issues, you know, our body is in the room too. So um, those are things that are going to be coming up in it, but yeah. So supervision, um, I work with a lot of people individually to help them with their clients. And I also um, do group supervision. I get individual supervision and I also do peer supervision. So it's something that not only I provide, but I also get supervision as well. Um, I get supervision for my supervision, which is yes. really funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we need to do it. Right. So, um, and I'm, that's one of the things I really want to learn more about is how to be better at supervising. But, um, you know, I've been a dietitian for 20 years now, so I really want to give back in a sense and pay it forward. And um, there were probably a good 10 years as a dietitian where I floundered and flailed and made lots of mistakes. And I would like to prevent that experience, you know, I, for anybody else, you know, I, I would like people to just feel like they don't have to um, feel that kind of frightening feeling as much. And there are mentors um, like Fiona and myself who can help you to not have to feel so alone. Yeah. Yes. Well, speaking of, I had that exact experience, you know, where um, I too have been a dietitian for around 20 years and 10 of those definitely felt like I floundered, probably had two episodes that I now recognize of of burnout where Mm. I thought there was actually something seriously wrong with me um and then you know of course did that typical human thing of oh there's something wrong with me so I need to fix it so then doubling down on my efforts to do better with what I perceived were my what I was doing wrong and I kind of had it the wrong way around (laughs) really and it was and it was a colleague of mine who was a social worker who identified what I was feeling she just took a good guess and she's like I think this is what might be going on I was like Mm. holy shit that's exactly what's going on and she said well you know in 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 all kinds of therapeutic circles in social work circles this is what we do and and if you would be willing this is what I would suggest you do so it was only then that I started you know doing doing uh, clinical supervision and uh, haven't stopped from there and like you I'm a bit of a supervision junkie let's just say <laughs> um, it's it's a well I regard it as an important part of my own self-care and longevity yeah for sure sure and it's it's something that's really helped me to understand um, you know, super technical things like how many clients are okay for me to see in a day? You know, when does it get to the point where I'm going to start burning out mm-hmm. and not providing good care? And then also um, maybe even um, therapeutically, what is the kind of counseling um, theory that I most kind of connect with? You know, it's it's been a, um, a really amazing part of my um I don't know, just growth as a clinician, having this part has really helped. And um, it's kind of like a catalyst, you know, just kind of helps you to make sure that you're growing, but then also preventing things, like you said, like burnout. I think I've had two episodes of burnout as well, FYI. Mm. <laughs> it's, it, feel, it feels really, um, I'm just going to use a very non-somatic um, word. It feels <laughs> yucky is what it feels. It, yeah, yeah, it's, um, and one of the, I think one of the compounding issues is we're not really trying to identify what it is. So, you know, ongoing fatigue, some somatic symptoms, maybe yeah. um, not being able to kick colds or little bits and pieces mm-hmm. that are going on for us. 
um, you know, irritability, changes in our mood, changes in our motivation. Um, maybe mm -hmm. if we have a propensity for depression and anxiety, that flares up. All kinds of things that, um, that can really interrupt our quality of life. But when we can identify it not as our fault, um, yeah. you know, th thanks to the systems in which we move, including diet culture, you know, there's this real tendency to, to really double down on ourselves and think, well, if it, I, I must have done something to quote unquote cause this and therefore... I must do something to get out of it. And it's the, what do we do that, that, that supervision offers this beautiful space where we can just bring our suitcase and then just open the suitcase with somebody who fully gets it. They fully yeah. get it. And that's a no blame, no shame environment where we can, you know, for those of us that are holding space for others, particularly others with quite complex experiences around food eating and their bodies. We need space as well. Yeah, we do. You know, like we do. We, like yeah. you say, I mean, we need that space. So we need somebody else to hold space for us as we hold space for others. Like it's, yes. it's passing on the love really. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And you know, as you're talking about this, I'm feeling so grateful because in the beginning as a dietitian, I basically had a piecemeal, my supervision together. I, it was a kind of a combination of my own personal psychotherapy and then having supervision from um, a therapist. And as a therapist, this, uh, I've had wonderful therapists as supervisors, but they're not dietitians. Mm -hmm. And so they don't really understand all that we do. And um, so they could only help me really like, oh, as a therapist, I would do this. And I'm like, well, I can't, I don't really do that, but I could do this, <laughs> you know? So I had to really kind of, I don't know, make it my own in a way. It was a lot more work. And so hearing you talk about it, I'm like, I am just so glad that we have clinicians who are dietitians who are do, doing supervision now because, oh my gosh, it's so much, it just makes things so much better because then exactly like you said, you can, you can all that like goop that we get another like non-technical term but that <laughs> we get from like holding space for all these clients and this their trauma that they are discussing you know when people are discussing their trauma we are sitting with it and energetically we're holding on to some of it and so we have all that goop and we can take it to our supervisor mm -hmm. and and you know when I worked with therapists as supervisors which again they've been wonderful and sometimes I still talk to therapists as supervisors but yet they're going to help me as if I'm a therapist, you know? And so when I'm working with a dietitian, they can really help me understand what I can do, what I can't do and, you know, what I can do with it. It's just, you know, as dietitians, we're a unique breed. We are um, <laughs> kind of these freaks that are just our own uniqueness. And so it's nice to have a, a supervisor with someone who really gets that part, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so for anybody listening, if you're a dietitian thinking, oh, maybe I should get some supervision. And, and what I would say is if any of us are working with humans, then we would benefit from supervision. You know, I think mm -hmm. probably one of the most common questions uh, that people ask me, Julie, is, you know, how do I know if I need supervision? And my very kind of quick and dirty response is simply, do you work with humans? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yes. <laughs> yep. 
well then mm. chances are that you need supervision and just yeah. for those listening remember that you know line management supervision it's not the same as being no, able to take same. in your suitcase and unpack your shit and and then pack up your shit again and take your suitcase out of there um, yes yes you know that, that even in clinical practice in food service in community we're going to be coming up against maybe um colleagues with some tricky personalities or maybe management yeah. issues or things that yeah. we're just not sure how to navigate. And so to understand, you know, we're not only in diet, in the broader culture, we also exist in diet culture and then we exist in what we might call dietetic culture, which has its own kind of mores and ways of being, which are very much rooted in patriarchal bullshit but anyway that's yeah. for another conversation Julie totally, <laughs> totally. That. oh my god it's all of that it's all of that yeah I mean we're the only group of people that can like talk about poop and be eating a meal and not get grossed out right <laughs> as scientists we are we're the it's like we are very unique but yeah Excuse we're me. special. <laughs> we're special, but I think we we kick ass. But anyway, <laughs> absolutely. So, so I'm, I'm I'm curious to hear a little bit about how you shifted um, your thinking or your beliefs or your mindset around um, from um, weight centric practice to weight more weight inclusive practice. I'm I'm curious about mm -hmm. that evolution for you, Julie. So um, actually was not until I finished my master's program in counseling that I started to identify that more weight inclusive kind of way of practicing as a dietitian. I was first introduced to intuitive eating and non-diet approaches right before I started the program. So um, about three years into my career as a dietitian, I was like, I don't see people changing. I don't see me helping. Um, I was specializing in pediatric nutrition. And I was doing a lot of work in pediatric endocrinology. And most of the people I was working with were kids in larger bodies. And what I basically saw in a nutshell was that either um, their weight didn't go down or they didn't come back. So like, um, and after, you know, 20, 30 or 40 people with the same kind of experience, I'm like, hmm, um, maybe there's something wrong with me. I'm obviously not doing it right. Um, and so I really was wanting to do more um, psychology and I've always wanted to be a therapist. So I took that as a sign that like, I basically was burning out that I needed to make a shift and pivot. And so I found this wonderful counseling program close to where I live and took like a two year sabbatical from dietetics. But as I was leaving the woman I hired to take over my spot in that pediatric nutrition position, um, I told her I was probably going to quit dietetics. And she said, Oh, before you quit, you should read this book called Intuitive Eating. Oh, <laughs> I was like, good. whatever. Um, her name's Alice Baker. She, oh, she's, yeah. uh, she's a wonderful dietitian. She also is a therapist too, which is really cool. But anyway, um, it wasn't until I finished that counseling program that I really read Intuitive Eating. But in that counseling program, I was like, yeah, there's no good or bad foods. And huh, weight loss, I don't think it works. And I, you know, having access to... Um, a, a big university journal section, you know, for free, I just really started reading the research and, and I didn't know terms like health at every size. It wasn't until about 2005, which was about a year after the program that I found that, that phrase, but, um, I was definitely going towards it, but I was a fencer for sure <laughs> because my first job out of my counseling program, um, I was working with eating disorders, but I was also helping, uh, kids in larger bodies to lose weight. I was, um, 
the dietitian that helped with bariatric surgery and um, really horrible like liquid diet program that I was mm. um, a dietitian in charge of that for this, this um, outpatient nutrition center. But I was teaching a class for this crap, crappy liquid diet program. And, you know, this, this program, what they had dietitians do is they would just like give you a curriculum for each class. Like I didn't have to think, like I, I could just read the script and I was fine. And it was a 30 minute class. And after about three minutes um, on this class on body image, I basically froze and said, uh, class is over. And I dismissed the class and a bunch of people complained because they paid for like a 30 minute class. So I went to my boss and she's like, what's up? You know, you had a lot of complaints because you didn't um, actually teach this class. And what was happening was I was that moment I was experiencing that cognitive, cognitive dissonance of I wanted to help people and I didn't want to harm people, but I was also helping them lose weight. And I was seeing in that moment how they couldn't stay together. There was just no way that they had, there was not enough room in my brain anymore for it. So I told her I couldn't do it anymore. And she said, I needed to, if I wanted to keep the job. So I quit mm -hmm. about two weeks later. And that's when, um, I think I went to a Renfrew conference right around that same time. And that's where I first heard health at every size. So, um, about a year after that is when I, I haven't put anybody on a diet since then. So, um, it was probably a good two years of fencing it. You know, I know you use that term a lot, but <laughs> But, um, you know, being in that in-between place of like, oh, I'm a non-diet dietitian, but yeah, I'll still have For certain weight. people. <laughs> For mm. certain people. Mm. Um, and I would even say, though, probably five years later, I was probably still saying things like, oh, I'll help you recover from your eating disorder, but I won't. I'll make sure you don't get fat. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I, yeah. I probably did that for another yeah. five years. And um, I you know something that I know probably five years from now, I'm going to probably listen to something like this and be like, oh, Julie, that was problematic. <laughs> Because we're always learning, right? But um, but yeah, so that's, in a nutshell, is my evolution to like how I kind of got to weight-inclusive um, dietetics. Mm -hmm. And um, I know my story is not necessarily unique. I feel like a lot of us have that. But I was lucky to be able to leave the job that was basically demanding me to keep doing the weight-centric care. Yeah. I feel really lucky. I, there was a lot of financial privilege in that moment where I was able to make that shift over and for the dietitians who are listening, who are stuck in a job that they just know ethically is not okay, but they have to because they need healthcare or they need to pay the bills or it helps them pay for their childcare or something like that. Like I totally feel for you and um, sending tons of compassion and I hope we can help you get out of it. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. Hopefully, yeah, because that's, yeah. that's a tough spot to be in. And get some sure. support and some supervision as well. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, but it's, it's not it's not always easy to get out of that for sure. No, no, it's not. And I think what you did there so beautifully, Julie, is in sharing your story, you also were really um, illustrating the interconnectedness for all of us as dietitians. I heard so much of my own experience in what you were telling then. And I know you and I do, we share mm -hmm. so much in common. It's also, it's a little bit weird that we share so much in <laughs> but we do. Yeah. In fact, I have to tell everybody listening this because it's, I think I've told quite a few people this story. When I first got to know Julie, I sent Julie a message and I said, I hope this is not creepy, but I wish you were my neighbor. <laughs> We would probably have wine together. Said, yeah. Yeah. So we could drink <laughs> wine together. 
and and this is when we kind of first got to know each other and I was like oh Fee oversharing whoopsie (laughs) (laughs) but you didn't know me yet and now you know I mean that is I welcome that kind of conversation (laughs) absolutely now I would be like I totally I want you to move into my house now my neighbor (laughs) I'd be a great roommate. <laughs> you would be a great roommate. You would be a great I do roommate. snore, but, you know, besides that, I'd be a great roommate. <laughs> yes, okay. I, I, I already live with a snorer, so it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Um, you know, just to loop back to what we were saying, I think that um, one of the – one of the things that dietitians often share with me is finding comfort in hearing that, that they are not alone in the same way as our mm-hmm. clients uh, find comfort in – in hearing that they're not alone. So, you know, there's that parallel process of what you were speaking about with your intentions with the Love Food podcast around, you know, sharing the stories and highlighting the stories of others to provide comfort. I think there are really some precious ways that we can do that for our colleagues too. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I I just, I'm look, I don't know whether there are any statistics on it, but, but I'm sure that the kind of dropout of dietetics rate is reasonably high. Uh, Like, really really un, unreasonably high really um mm-hmm. uh, you know com- the, the program itself is tough it's long it's expensive um yeah. you know so if we can do things to support our colleagues our friends to stay in the profession if they want to stay in the profession that is of course everybody has the right to leave but it would be a it's such a pity if ostensibly health culture diet culture weight centric culture actually causes that kind of tidal wave of exhaustion that actually eventually pushes people out i feel devastated about that Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're when we are trained, we're set up to believe that we have to be the perfect eaters. We have to present as um, perfectly healthy, have our shit together, and also at the same time be a scientist to be very intelligent. And I mean, I, we need to know our shit, but also like we're human and we all have differences, <laughs> and we also have to acknowledge that there are no perfect eaters. And we, at the same time, I think what I, I know what I was trained. I shouldn't say like we, cause I know for me, I was trained that if someone is talking to you about their eating and they're in a body that's larger and they're telling you they're not eating very much that you shouldn't believe them. Mm-hmm. And um, I was not really encouraged to, test things based on my own lived experience. I was not trained in social justice. And I think those are all things that make for um, a profession that is lacking some really important pieces. You know, like you said, this, this training to become a dietitian, it's very, it's rigorous and it's very expensive. So it's exclusive. And so Mm -hmm. um, it keeps so many different voices out Mm -hmm. and, um, by keeping all those voices out and not really training people to acknowledge like, Oh, your lived experience may not be the same as your client. Mm. So don't assume anything. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I was taught to assume way too much. And, you know, one of the things that, especially working with my clients with polycystic ovarian syndrome is that it's really important to believe them. And I I bring up PCOS because my clients with PCOS, a lot of times they're in larger bodies and in the throes of anorexia, but people aren't acknowledging it, even though their hair is falling out, um, they, um, 
have like a low heart rate, like all these clinical signs as dietitians that should be on our radar, but because their body is a BMI that's, you know, higher than some doctor says it should be, you know, if someone's saying they're only eating X, Y, Z amount of calories, well, that just can't be the case, (laughs) but no. Mm -hmm. And, um, so yeah, I think it's really important for us to believe our clients. And then like we were talking about earlier, give them space to teach us what it's like to be them instead of filtering it all through like our lived experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I was sharing with uh, I was sharing with you before that you must have a decent scientific brain because understanding the, the nuances of hormone regulation and supplementation and all these kind of things, working with folks with PCOS, it's got to be it's got to be, you know, fine tuning that scientific part of your brain. But what I really love most about the work that you do, Julie, and and lots of our colleagues as well, is that having a very person-centered approach and having really strong counseling skills means that we can translate that information and that, you know, quote unquote, education, if we really want to call it that, whatever it is, that we're really um, elevating somebody's uh, wisdom to be able to tune into their own lived experience, plus offering maybe some new information um, in ways that are able to be integrated as opposed to supersede somebody's lived experience. So um, I'm curious to ask you a little bit about your work with PCOS. And I really, what I would really encourage Um, listeners to do is to go back to some of the podcasts that you have um, been a guest on because you do a really deep dive into PCOS. In particular, I wanted to um, draw people's attention to the Dietitians Unplugged um, interview that you did not that long ago, maybe six months or so. You know, I think it was longer than that, but I have oh, no it? idea. Oh, look I mean, my brain life with like, life with kids is yeah, it's all messed up. <laughs> um, I don't know, but it's a great know. one still because I took a really deep dive into PCOS and fertility, especially. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I studied hard for that one. Did you? Oh, <laughs> you're such a nerd. <laughs> well, because I was really invested to learn more. Because here's the thing with PCOS, people are. Um, needing fertility treatment. You know, yes. if someone's not ovulating or um, either at all or not in a predictable way, they're probably going to need fertility treatment when they want to start a family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't have PCOS, but I did experience infertility. And one thing that I always say is you just don't fuck with maternal desire. Mm-hmm. And because it is a really strong and exhausting experience. And so my clients with PCOS who've done everything under the sun to try to um, get pregnant, um, when they go to their doctor, their doctor just tells them, oh, go lose 30 pounds, which I don't know where this 30 pounds comes from. No, but basically, no matter what, yeah. I know, but it doesn't matter what the person's size is, it's like 30 pounds. And um, I also think about my clients who are in same-sex relationships, who are wanting fertility treatment. They are relying on fertility uh, medicine to, in order to have a family. And so my clients who um, are in same-sex relationship and in a larger body are not getting access to building their family. I'm like, it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I took a deep dive because I was like, we need to figure out a way to like just show what the research is not showing. And part of what I basically have come to terms with, I don't like this, Fiona, but I've come to terms with is that the PCOS research is just 
so incredibly fat phobic yeah. and invested. Um, Shavise Turner is uh, a therapist who I interviewed on. Um, I did like a PCOS and food peace podcast um, about a year ago. And um, she's someone who, like I said, is a therapist, but also has PCOS. But what she said is, is the medical providers and PCOS treatment are just so married to the weight loss, weight loss paradigm that they just can't see it. You know, yeah. they can't see the problems with it. And so what I've basically come to terms with it, it is so fat phobic and there's just not enough research to be able, like we don't have evidence that any diet works for PCOS and we don't have any evidence that any diet doesn't work. Like there's just no evidence. <laughs> and so what I've had to do, and I think it's okay to do this is I have to use practice-based evidence. Mm -hmm. I have to listen to my clients and gather the data of what they're doing. So I can tell all my other clients, this is what these people are doing. This worked for them. This did not work. Which one do you want to try first? Mm. And if any, and let me know what worked and what didn't. So I can share that outcome with other clients, you know? And so this practice-based evidence, I think in our, you know, uh, misogynistic and fat phobic world, we have to sometimes rely on. And that's what I, with like fertility medicine and PCOS in particular, I basically have had to be okay with. And that's where the, the counseling skills as dietitians, if we can really pay attention to what our clients are saying mm -hmm. and listen and um, gather that kind of data, we can still provide our clients with that information, you know, moving forward, you know, not, we're not going to like share specifics because, you know, confidentiality, but I can share with my clients, you know, most people that I work with have found they just need more protein when they have yes. PCOS. Mm -hmm. They just, I think that's just what's going on. Let, let's see if that's the same for you. And if, if so, let's figure out strategically for you, if there's a place for it, you know, do you need to be strategic? Do you not? And, um, going it from the kind of that kind of direction. And so, so yeah, I think as dietitians, especially weight inclusive dietitians, we need to be okay with using some of that practice-based evidence to guide us, you know. Absolutely. And I think one of the things to remember is that evidence-based practice actually comprises three separate arms anyway. So the first is what we best understand from the literature and just remembering that the literature is extremely flawed in so many ways, mm -hmm. mostly through, you know, what are the questions that we're asking and why are we asking that question? What are the measures that we're using? Um, what are the what are the outcomes that we're expecting? Who's funding this, etc, etc. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, there's the, the first element of evidence-based practices is what we best understand from the literature, which you know, is only what it is, right? And the yeah. second thing is client preferences and values. So what does the client want to do? If anything, if mm -hmm. anything, some people, um, their life experiences are just so tough. This is the last thing that they want to do. And probably for your clients, Julie, I imagine that they're almost willing to do anything. Anything. You know, Cut off their arm. Right. Anything, a anything yeah. right? And so there will be a, a there will be wildly varying levels of motivation to do something, right? And then the third aspect of evidence-based practice is clinician skill. So mm -hmm. you could go to 20 different dietitians, let's just say for the sake of our discussion and get quite different experiences, quite different quote unquote outcomes in terms of um, maybe symptom, symptom reduction or quality of life enhancement or, you know, whatever your particular reasons for being there are. But I think what happens 
is that when we talk about evidence-based practice, what that seems to be code for is what we have evidence for in the literature. And you can probably hear it in the way I'm explaining it. I get really frustrated because I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not just about what is in black and white in paper, on paper. Yeah. And that's what I, why I love what you were saying about practice-based evidence because what it does is it, is it hones our skills and brings our skills to the fore as well and kind of uh, encourages us to use those, those investigative experimenting skills, and then also honours the very real valid lived experience of the person in front of us um, and puts that as a priority. So I love yeah, it, it, is a pri it is a priority for sure because, you know, we can know everything about the Krebs cycle and endocrinology and all this stuff. But yet if a person sitting in front of you has been through the ringer with diets and is so um, malnourished because they've been, always been through diets and um, maybe in endocrinology it's saying if we help people eat less carbohydrate it will help lower their insulin levels well that's fine if it's a robot you know? <laughs> but if but this person sitting in front of me is literally being tortured by this recommendation there the, it's important to you know really figure out what your client actually wants to do and what is safe for them to do? Absolutely. Because you know, if we don't actually understand what where they're coming from and their lived experience, yeah, this could be a really unsafe thing. And um, I'm so glad you said that about evidence based practice. I um, I learned something from this. Thank you. Yeah, you're <laughs> welcome. There's wonderful. actually there's actually a really cool article about it, which I will send to you, Julie, and I'll also post, in the, post in the notes awesome. too. That kind of goes through. <laughs> the sections each of the different elements I should say um, and I think it's just a really nice it, it's a really nice way to frame a conversation particularly when maybe we're speaking with colleagues or other health professionals okay. and they're just like citing research it's like this research off you know between people and so we can say well that's all very well and good and also you know unless we're also incorporating clinician skill and client preferences and values and what they want to do, what they have the capacity to do, then the literature's moot, let's face it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's really interesting if if you have time to read, I don't know if it was I think it's like two thousand pages or maybe maybe it's a little oh, bit gosh. less than that. <laughs> but the twenty eighteen, I don't think it's that much, but it's a lot. But the twenty eighteen evidence based guidelines for PCOS. Um <laughs> they're very interesting. But in summary, they basically um they exercise their right to be fat phobic all over the place. Oh, <laughs> they, no. they talk about um, recommending, you know, weight management as the first line of uh, defense and blah, blah, blah. But what they say is that um, there is not any particular diet or way of eating that has been shown to promote long-term health for PCOS. Mm -hmm. So it's like, so just pick whatever one. Space is really what it says. You know, I'm not right. even kidding. It's like, well, we haven't found any that actually work. So just rec recommend any. It oh my goodness. Really yeah. And um, I was glad to see they actually bring up things like weight stigma, but they also say we need to make sure that when we're recommending weight management, that we are psychologically, um, are treating our clients uh, with like, acknowledging the psychological issues with um, weight stigma but yet still recommending weight management. Uh, I know. <laughs> and I'm like, so, oh, can't you get, like, get through this? <laughs> it is like, here, have the weight stigma conversation with a side surf of weight stigma. 
Yeah. When you're recommending I- weight management, make sure you remember weight stigma. <laughs> that's, that's so funny. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a hoot. If you really want to have a, awesome. a good laugh about internalized fat phobia, it's all over it. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, I certainly yeah. will provide a link to that. It, I mean, it's interesting I can to give know, it to you for sure. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting yeah. to know what the practice guidelines are so that we're aware of what our clients are being told, right? Yeah. 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 And it, it, um, it just shows how little information there is about how to actually help people with PCOS with the food part, but yet it's still recommended as the primary way to treat it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm really interesting. Um, you know, when, when I work with people with PCOS, I feel like, I mean, I am a dietitian. I think food's important, but Hey, like medication may actually help and it may help you to not feel like you're being tortured and it medication shouldn't be used as a fear tactic, but yet like actually helping you to access health. Um, I wish there was more of that for sure. in those, those guidelines instead of just like, let's just shame people into, um, lowering their insulin levels or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I feel a sneeze coming on. Hold on. Woo. Oh. You're welcome to sneeze. It's... It kind of came and then it went and then I burped. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I love it. All of you is welcome. <laughs> Hopefully you'll just cut that part out. Okay. No, I'm not going to. I'm going to publish this. <laughs> Julie Duffer Dillon. In all her humanity. <laughs> That's cool. Whatever. <laughs> whatever, whatever. I know. Yeah. Um, Julie, one thing that I particularly wanted to chat with you about, because I know it's, it's something that you and I have been giving a lot of thought, is to the importance of language, particularly gendered language, um, around people who have PCOS or who, who are experiencing PCOS. So can you, can you kind of step us through a little bit of your learning about, about language and how, that, how your understanding of of particularly gendered language has, has shifted over time. Cause I think it's until we know better, we can't do better. Right. Um, right. and certainly when somebody pointed this out <laughs> to me, I was like, Oh, Oh my goodness. Of course. Um, it makes complete sense. So, um, I would love it if you don't mind stepping us through. Yeah, sure. And I feel like it's important just to acknowledge I'm definitely not an expert on this topic. I am still learning and not necessarily to like, give me grace, but just know that I probably listen to this recording a year from now and be like, oh yeah, I still have a lot to learn. And I will still have a lot to learn after that too. <laughs> and that is but, okay. <laughs> no, yeah, I just wanted to name that. Um, and especially that, you know, I don't have, uh, I don't consider myself an expert on it. And I think the, the people I learn the most from are for people with the lived experience. And so um, I just want to say like, there are dietitians who have lived experience in this particular area that I think are really important too. Um, one is Von Darst um, from All Gender Nutrition on Instagram. But anyway, a few years ago, um, I was doing that, um, getting ready to do the PCOS and Food Peace podcast. And I got an email from someone who um, had emailed me about the Love Food podcast where I was talking about PCOS. And um, they, and they, the the person who wrote in said their um, pronouns were, were they and them. And so uh, they brought up that they wanted more information on PCOS, but yet also felt like they didn't have a place because they did not identify as a woman. And so it just made me pause and remember that uh, I still have a lot to learn. And I just um, started to talk more with um, fellow clinicians and some dietitians and some therapists in my area about how to do this better. And, um, you know, part of my struggle with it, which I now know, I feel like um, using more gender inclusive language is what I felt feel 
best about and I'm going to what I'm going to be doing moving forward and um, there was a part of me that almost felt like this feminist kind of like well why can't I say woman because it's um, predominantly been this woman condition again this is my old way of thinking with it and you know I do identify as a feminist so there was a part of me that felt like am I lose am I leaving a part of feminism behind by not saying women with PCOS. And I've come to appreciate that. No, that's not the case. It's just allowing for enough space for anyone, anyone's voice with PCOS. Um, And, you know, in PCOS circles, PCOS is so poorly funded. And um, I get so little time with um, researchers or people in government. And so there's just so few times we actually hear about it. But the only time we hear about it is when it's like women and girls with PCOS. And there are men, there are people who are non-binary who have PCOS who are just basically getting totally left out. And, you know, I already work with people who are in bodies um, that felt um, overlooked or not believed. And so when I, this kind of came to my attention, I'm like, why why am I not also including people with this experience too? Like I, and I remember talking um, to Vaughn, who I mentioned earlier on the Love Who podcast. And, you know, he said, including people's pronouns that they identify with is one of the most powerful things we can do for people to help them recover from an eating disorder. You know, people who are in the throes of an eating disorder and, um, non-binary or transgender, just using the pronouns that they want you to use, like 50% or more of the eating disorder is lessened just doing that. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I have to do this. Like this is a no brainer. And um, let's, so this was probably about a, a year ago and I, you know, did that PCOS and food peace podcast and I'm not going to name the person who kind of called me in because I don't have permission. Um, and I'm so grateful to this person, but the person was promoting their own episode and, and saw some of the blog posts that um, we had written for it. And it was very gendered, you know, it was just women with PCOS and said, you know, I, I can't, I can't share this because it's not like, this is not what I would believe in and all that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to actually like do this. You know, I need to actually make sure it's safe for everybody. Um, and so I was so appreciative of that because it made me scrub my website and look for as much. I'm, I know there's still some in there, but I'm always looking for um, the language that's not appropriate. And what I'm doing right now is I'm re-recording. I have a PCOS course for people with PCOS and then also clinicians who are wanting to better help their clients with PCOS. And women with PCOS is all over it. So I'm re-recording it um, the month of November and December of 2019 to just get it up to where it needs to be. So it is inclusive of the voices that I want this message to get to, you know, I want everyone to feel like, um, I want, I feel like everyone should feel at home in their own skin. And so as a clinician, it's my job to make sure that I don't exclude anybody, Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, so yeah, so yeah, it's a very, um, I feel like, again, I just need a name that I'm not like an expert in this and I don't necessarily have like a well kind of um, thought out kind of way that this has happened because I'm still in the middle of it. And um, I still think it's so important. And I almost, I'm like, I'm glad I'm kind of talking to you now as I'm changing it, because I feel like there's probably somebody else who can relate to it too. And maybe was thinking the same thing. Um, but um, I, I've spent a, the last um, year, maybe even eight, 18 months 
um, getting supervision from people who are non-binary or trans, just so I can better understand. And um, I think it's my job as someone who has a lot of privilege and is in a body that's not marginalized um, to make sure that I understand different lived experiences. And here's the thing, even if you, the listener, don't understand someone who's trans or non-binary, that's not an excuse to, like, to exclude them from the healing kind of narrative that you may have. Um, and just because you don't understand it doesn't mean you know it's best. You know, I think that's something that I've noticed in supervising other dietitians is that they think that they don't understand it, so it's not right. I'm like, oh, that's, that's not right. <laughs> that's not true. So, so yeah, I don't know if you have any follow-up questions from that, but that's basically where I am with it, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think that was just so beautifully explained, Julie, and thank you so much for doing so, because what you really described there is the is the process of being what we would call, what we would name as called in, which mm-hmm. is somebody points something out to you, which um, may not be aligned with maybe social, with the social justice paradigms in which mm-hmm. you profess and that that we move um and it also gives us a chance to make those shifts which have more benefit and and greater reach to to everybody in everybody um so when we're talking about body inclusive work where we are really talking about all bodies and i think that's one of the major learning points for dietitians is that you mm-hmm. know a lot of a lot of our a lot of our core training is really very Eurocentric. It's very um, quote unquote kind of health centric. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of, there's this uh, narrative of quote unquote normal that we have, which really needs to be dismantled from our profession moving out. And I think what you did just beautifully there is, is provide ideas for people, very concrete ideas, actually, for those of us that, uh, that identify as highly privileged, highly multi-sectionally, no, multi, oh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I don't know either, so don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) In lots of different ways, in lots of different ways that we're privileged. Um, Multi-privileged, I mean, I definitely. Multi-privileged, there we go. Is that the right, is that the right word? I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's, that, 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 that feels really good. No, that feels exactly right. Yeah. You know, and I, something else I would add to that too, which I think is so important, and this has come up when I've been supervising other dietitians, is um, providing gender-inclusive care, gender-affirming care. Mm-hmm. When you help people with eating disorders or just work as a dietitian, if you're wanting to be a health at every size dietitian, this is a part of it. So, you know, you may say that you're a non-diet dietitian or you do intuitive eating. Um, but if you're going to say you are a health at every size practitioner or you're a health at every size informed practitioner, this has to be a part of it or it's not because it's not including all bodies. It's not um, providing um, an affirming space for someone to access healthcare when we don't include all bodies. And that, to me, that's what it was like heavy, you know, um, you know, that um, um, this is totally an eighties or nineties flashback, but, not about Australia, but do you know the band Toad the Wet Sprocket? I've he- I've heard of them. <laughs> okay. Tell me more. Oh, they're Google them after we get off the phone. Oh god, um, <laughs> they have a song. They have a song where they say, "Nothing's louder than hearing when I lie." And I'm not saying that mm. you know we lie when we don't provide gender inclusive care. But what I, for me, what was happening is when I was saying women with PCOS, it was so loud. I was like, yes. "Oh, no, that's not right, Julie." 
start again. You know, like it's mm. um, because that simple phrase, women with PCOS, excludes people to the point where it hurts them. And um, it could be a life or death kind of phrase. So why not provide something that just helps people to feel more alive? <laughs> you know, like to me, I'm like that, just like, who cares? Just do that. Like, what's the big deal? So, but yeah, and anybody listening who identifies as a health at every size clinician, um, I hope this is a part of your work too. Definitely. And if it's not, then there's not, then yeah. Then then we're, not. We're, yeah, <laughs> no. And we're, and we're so fortunate to have so many organizations and individuals and community groups there to, to support us to learn more and do better. So mm-hmm. again, I would really refer people back to um, Vaughn Darst, who was mm-hmm. a guest on Love Food. And mm-hmm. um, he did a just incredible job as a guest. And I know he's also been a guest on food psych mm-hmm. as well um yep. and is just a, a gift to the world honestly so yes. uh, i really encourage people to to link back to that and I'll pop, I'll pop those those links in the show notes as well um so oh my goodness julie we could literally speak for hours and in fact we have done <laughs> done so in the past and i hope <laughs> to do so yeah. more in the future there's been for burps sure. there's been swearing there's been everything <laughs> Oh, I just feel so at home when I talk to you. It's like we're, Mm -hmm. I don't have a glass of wine. We should have had wine when we talked. I know. (laughs) What are you doing? It's in your time zone. I know. It's probably too early for you to do that. (laughs) No. (laughs) After midday, ticks that box. (laughs) So funny. Oh, my goodness. Um, Julie, please tell us where we can find more about you. And I mean, there'll be links to all kinds of love food episodes yeah. in this. So aside from the love food podcast, um, where's the main places that people can, can find you? The easiest place is just to go to web- my website. It's juliedillonrd.com. And I'm also on Instagram at food peace dietitian. Perfect. Easy, easy peasy. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Thanks so much for um, inviting me on. It was just so great to chat. Of course. Well, life goals, hashtag life goals, tick, done. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Tick. We finally made it happen. Oh my goodness. Yes. Excellent. Now I can put my head on the pillow at night. This is great. Okay. That's a little bit dramatic, but it's not fun. Um, Julie, again, thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom, for um, sharing everything that is so you uh, with me here today. It's just been an absolute pleasure and I really look forward to reconnecting with you very soon. Awesome. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.